Attention all entrepreneurs in the ag, western, and rural space that are struggling to work on your business because you're too deep in your business. We just announced the dates for our second in-person mastermind, January 30th through February 1st, and want to invite you to attend. Elevate the Summit is a two-month-long small group mastermind and coaching community comprised of an in-person retreat plus virtual coaching calls. We hosted our first summit this summer, and here's what attendees had to say. It was just what I needed. I was in a place where I didn't know the steps to move forward with my business. I came out of the summit with an action plan and a group of women to have for a sounding board afterwards. I'm so thankful there will be follow-up calls for check-ins and accountability. I really feel confident in my plan. And now at a week after the summit, I have been able to follow through with what I said I would follow through with. And my plan is currently on track. I am so excited for the future of my business and thankful for Natalie and Tara's guidance along the way. Overall, I'm very satisfied with the summit. I enjoyed that it was actually focused on taking an action plan in the right direction. It was a good balance of discovering what direction I needed to go, determining the steps to get there, and having a community to hold me accountable. And here's another one. This experience not only changed my business, but changed my life. I've never invested in myself or my business like this, and this event was a thousand percent worth it. If you are a business owner or have a brand online and are looking to spend time digging deep into your brand or business and strategizing the steps you need to elevate it and yourself to the next level, the mastermind is for you. You can find out more at our website, elevateyouragstory.com, and the application to apply is linked in our show notes. We really hope to see you guys there. For over 100 years, the American Farm Bureau Federation has served as one of the nation's loudest voices in agriculture. Working through grassroots organizations to enhance and strengthen the ag industry, the AFPF has worked to build a sustainable future of safe and abundant food, fiber, and renewable fuel for our nation and the world. And today we're going to chat with its president, Zippy Duval. Zippy Duval has served as president of American Farm Bureau Federation since 2016. He is a third generation farmer from Georgia. He and his son operate a beef cow herd, raise broiler chickens, and grow their own hay, all while continuing to restore the farmland that has been in his family for more than 90 years. Welcome on the podcast today, President Duval. I We are so honored that you are making time to talk with us today. Well, thank you. I'm proud to be with y'all. So to jump right in, I have a my first question, I feel like is very timely, um, but it, it it's about kind of what American Farm Bureau is doing to connect with consumers so that they understand ag better. And I feel like the reason why I think this is top of mind for me is because of what the law that just passed in California about the size of broiler chicken space. I think you probably know more about this than me, but essentially a law was passed in California because it was voted on. And I think that was kind of one of the tactics of the you know, proponents for this law was they knew that consumers weren't going to know a lot about the law. And so they obviously said, yeah, we we want chickens to have more space. That's how they read it. And they voted for it to pass. And it has rippling implications throughout the country. So this is now at the Supreme Court. American Farm Bureau is fighting the good fight on this. Can you share just a little bit more about like what you guys are doing, what your efforts are, and like why this is important? Yeah. The case really was about uh, hogs. Yeah. Oh, pigs. hogs. I'm sorry. Yeah. You're right. No, that's okay. But it's uh, gestation. Uh, crates that hogs are in and handled in. And you're exactly right. They put that on the ballot uh, with 
uh, and put it out to the people to vote for or against. And of course, we're all for treating animals humanely and taking care of them, but we want to do it in a way that's sustainable for our farm and in the uh, uh, direction, under the direction of a veterinarian, a prude veterinarian. And that's the way all hogs are raised across the country. Uh, they passed it in the state of California where there are very few hog farmers, if any. Uh, and of course, uh, don't blame the voters at all because we all want to support that. Uh, and so we, we felt like that it was an arbitrary number that they were using about how many square feet that the hog had to have in it. Uh, and we want to make all our decisions based off uh, medicine that veterinarians provide us, their advice, and sound science that says what's good for the hogs. Uh, really and truly, if we raised hogs according to what that uh, Proposition 12 said, it'd be more harmful to the hogs. Uh, the hogs aren't really kind to each other, especially while they're eating or whether they're birthing or whether, you know, uh, going through gestation uh, periods. So, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of things that the voters didn't really know about went into that. So we were at the Supreme Court and had the opportunity to sit and listen to that case. You know, uh, I understand less than 1% of the court cases get to the Supreme Court. So for us to be able to take that all the way to Supreme Court to try to help farmers and defend farmers' rights to uh, do uh, handle their animals in, in a humane, guided by veterinarians way, it was we were proud to be able to do that, along with the National Pork Association. I saw it compared to as if for people like – to just give some reference, it would be like as if we put something on the ballot that was about like a medical procedure. Like we as everyday Americans, I have no idea what should be like the correct, you know, medical operation or something. That's not my area of expertise. And this is similar. Like we put it to voters who don't have a solid foundation for understanding like animal welfare and what it actually looks like. This needed to be a conversation between farmers and veterinarians. And that's that's not what ended up happening, obviously. And so I do think, though, this goes to why it's so important for consumers for us to have a relationship with consumers and be able to talk with them about what's going on and why we do what we do. That's exactly right, and uh, it, it's it's important uh, that we continue to defend our farmers' positions and what we do out here, uh, and not just defend it, but inform people, just like y'all do on, on your podcast here today. The more people understand what we do and why we do it, uh, the, the more they trust us in doing it. And this, this court case is very widespread. And it did, you know, it could, if the ruling went the wrong way, it could affect any small business across America. So our state could pass a law saying we don't want uh, uh, cotton grown uh, uh, in with the thickness that it's grown in, that you had to spread it out further and it wouldn't be efficient. Uh, it could be led into any other types of uh, small businesses, what, how people manufacture their products that we buy each and every day doesn't have anything to do with agriculture. I do think that was one of the dangerous things about it. I'm glad you brought this up and you mentioned it earlier a little bit, but you know, I read a statistic that California consumes about 13% of pork, but about a hundred percent, almost a hundred percent of it is grown outside of the state. And so I do think right. it's really dangerous to get into the territories of the water of, of letting one state dictate, um, you know, the whole, the whole agriculture industry, you know, for pork, um, when they're not truly really involved on the production side of it. And so I do think 
Um, I don't know. That's just really scary as a, a producer. And I think honestly, as a consumer, it should be a little alarming too, that you're letting someone who really has, you know, no, uh, knowledge base of what it's like to grow, you know, pork, um, make decisions for it. And if you just think about when, when that kind of a regulation comes on to an industry like the pork industry, uh, the larger pork farms may be able to survive that, but the small and uh, medium-sized pork farms probably couldn't make that adjustment because the cost uh, is about $500 per hog, uh, and that's a huge investment uh, for a small and medium or any farmer, but especially a small, medium-sized farmer. Yeah, and going down the line from that, that's obviously going to have implications in our grocery stores. And at 8% inflation, I mean, pork, different, you know, foods are already on such a high percentage increase over the last year. Uh, I think the thought right now of making our food even more expensive when it's not backed by sound science and sound decisions seems absolutely ludicrous just because – I would hate to price ourselves out of, you know, people being able to afford a nutritious product like pork when it's not necessary and it, you know, it's not backed by veterinarians. Well, and one of the cases we made was, you know, if you, if you, if the people in California don't want to eat pork that's grown that way, then just label it differently. So they know how it was produced and rather than force farmers into something outside of their state, produce it for them and and you're exactly right uh, someone says well why wouldn't a farmer want to do it that way to get a, a increase in premium to do that well that uh, farming doesn't exactly work that way farmers don't exactly get the premiums all the time it's someone between us and the consumer that gets that premium and 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 that that just doesn't lead everybody to the market yeah, I think people are always surprised that farmers are price takers and not price yeah. makers a lot of the time. So we get what we get and we don't throw a fit, as I like to tell my young children. Um, that's kind of the predicament that farmers end up in. So, yeah, just saying like, oh, well, then you can charge a premium because it's a premium product. It, it it just doesn't relay the same way. No. So another thing I wanted to talk with you about, we have a big year coming up for agriculture. Uh, the farm bill is coming around the corner. And this is not your first farm bill. This is not your first rodeo. You have been president of American Farm Bureau since 2016. So you've done this once before. How are you feeling going into this second farm bill at, as president? And what are you maybe excited about? And what are you maybe nervous about? Or what's on your radar? Sure. So the excitement comes around, you know, when you have a, a, a pandemic like we had, you know, it's all, you know, there's a lot of bad things that come out of that. When I mean, just pandemic makes you think of bad things. But there's always silver lining and everything. And one of the silver linings is it kind of shook us as consumers that, you know, hey, our food supply may be very fragile. It may not be that because there's not enough of it but the supply chain to getting it to us can be fragile. And if we overregulate or we do things that make that supply chain more difficult, then it becomes even more fragile. And really and truly uh, food production is a national security issue because if we had to depend on other countries, like we're having to depend on them for oil right now, uh, then they could, they could tell us what we had to do and we'd have to do it to get our food. So it's a national security issue, but because we've been shaken as consumers, we realize that it is fragile. So it excites me that the public, the constituents of the congressmen and senators up here 
understand better how fragile that is and how important food is to their families. So that excites me that we have a different uh, audience looking with an appreciation of our food system and supply. Uh, what makes me nervous is we're fixing going to go through um, uh, election here in November. Uh, uh, and and in, after that election, we're going to have a huge number of congressmen and senators that have never, that weren't in Congress and have never worked through a farm bill. And farm bill is not a simple piece of legislation. It's probably one of the most important pieces of legislation that's considered in Congress today because it not only deals with farmers, it deals with uh, conservation. It deals with risk management tools. It deals with hung, feeding the hungry uh, uh, because 85% or more of the farm, the farm bill, it, uh, the cost of it goes to feeding the hungry of our people. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of people don't understand that. So to have that many new congressmen and senators coming to town that's never dealt with a farm bill, it's going to be a huge effort on our part and everybody else in agriculture to uh, inform them as to how important this one piece of legislation is to them and their constituents, whether they're a rural congressman and senator or whether they come from the urban parts of the country, there's something in the farm bill that affects their constituents, whether it be conservation or whether it be rest management tools or whether it be feeding the hungry or the, the not so fortunate people in our country. I going back to some of the first things you said, I do think that the pandemic and post pandemic has given ag like its moment right now. And I heard a quote early on in the pandemic during um, something with the UN I attended. And it was if I hope that as history, when history, we you know when this is in the past for us, we look back on this moment and we as farmers took this pivotal moment and really used it to share and connect and amplify the message of agriculture. And I think you're absolutely right that it is like more now than ever, people at least have some like inkling of the food supply. It is somewhere on their radar, like it's never been before of what the food supply looks like, how much goes into it. And it's just a very unique moment for us in ag. And I think it's very well-timed that this happens right before the farm bill, because I do hope we get to use that momentum. I do hope we look back on the in a few years and say we did do a really good job of capturing this moment. Well, and just look what's going on in the world in Ukraine and what's, what's, how their dependency on just food is so important to them right now because they're in a war. Don't think that can't happen to, to some other parts of the, of the world. Uh, so our, our jobs are national security and, and people, uh, the more they understand what we do, that's why what y'all are doing is so valuable. The more they understand why, what we do and how we do it, the, the better off we are and stronger we are, more secure we are as a country. And even you can carry that conversation on into sustainability and the climate conversation. We need the technology. We need, uh, 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 broadband. We need everything that we can do to do uh, grow more by using less uh, uh, using less water, less uh, fertilizers, so that we can protect the soil more, so that we can grow more plants, uh, sequestering carbon. There's a whole conversation out there, and all of it is driven by the Farm Bill because the Farm Bill provides risk management tools 
And does why would a consumer want us to have risk management? Well, they want risk management on their house and their home and their lives. But don't they want us to have risk management for agriculture that feeds their families so to make sure that my farm gets through a disaster and gets to the next crop so we can grow their food next year? Of course they would, but they got to understand it and be able to connect it all in their reasoning. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up farm the you know the idea of national security, food as national security, because um, I don't think it's brought into conversations enough. And whenever people you know who are outside um, of the industry that are like pushing to make changes or lobbying you know to make changes for agriculture that aren't really involved in it, I'm always like, are they thinking big picture about the implications of like what changes could be? I'm like, when we're talking importing, exporting, I mean, you can't just change, uh, you know, those large of structured things in agriculture and not like think of the ripple effects of it, which there are so many before you get to the national security part of it. But that like, that's the big picture. And I just don't think it's thought about or talked about enough. No, because they all think that farmers are getting a subsidy and getting rich off of it. We get a subsidy when the prices go too low, when a disaster comes through our town so that we can still pay our bills and be there for the next crop next year to fill everybody's pantries and put food on their table that we don't get rich off subsidies that that that's a misconception of the farm bill you know connecting this back to uh, the first part of our conversation one of the things that does kind of make me nervous is that law like that passed in california like you said it, it could have implications of putting farmers out of business like that's the reality that people will not be able to afford the increased size housing and will go out of business and what i worry about is how much of our ag we will push to other countries and where they're able to they don't have to follow those regulations where they don't have to follow the same environmental regulations and how much of our like emissions uh, are we going to push off on other countries for them to handle because we don't want to have it in our backyard or we want to make ourselves carbon neutral? And it goes back to that natural national security risk. Like, I know I want us to have a healthy supply of U.S. grown, raised and processed pork here in this country. Same for beef, same for dairy. And I just worry that different laws and different things that get passed make that, you know, that reality that like we could have more and more ag coming. And I mean, trade is obviously important. Exports, imports are important, but having a healthy supply within our own country is vital. Now, uh, ladies, I, I really are, are kind of miffed by the idea that people don't want us to be able to use technology. They don't trust it in agriculture, but in their lives with their health and, and what's on their hand and in their hand. They're using technology every day and they're doing it freely and, and wanting more, but they don't want us to use the technologies that are allowing us to do a better job in climate, to be a, do a better job in sustainability, to do a better job in conservation, to do a better job in filling their pantries and putting food on their children's tables. And we somehow have got to inform people to understand that the technologies we use are just as safe as the technologies that we're using today by doing this podcast and the phones we take care around with us and all the special things that we have in our house where we can lock our door from miles away or cut the heat up, or, you know, whatever you want to think. Or, you know, my wife just died with cancer several years ago. Listen, I would have accepted any technology that they would have had to extend her life a little bit longer and would have trusted it. But but no, in agriculture, in food, 
people have a hard time with that. And I really am a little uh, confused about that. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because we were actually just on your podcast. Um, and Tara had mentioned that people associate with, you know, in agriculture, the bigger the number, you know, bad. And I do feel like there's that same association, like you just said, with technology, that's bad. Like people want that idyllic, you know, per notion they have created in their head of what agriculture was X amount of years ago. And that, you know, that equates to them to feeling good and comfortable. And I tell you, Tara and I were just in California a couple of weeks ago, and I saw some of those different products that need, you know, human labor. Um, and I wouldn't want to be out there picking it. And I just, I don't understand how consumers, you know, some of those environments. Um, and I can't imagine it's all, you know, fair and good. And that's what they're advocating more for in presence of, like you said, a simple technology to replace it. Um, so it, it is interesting how we have, you know, a lot of work as an industry to, to do, to, you know, relay some of these conversations to the consumers to understand it. We may understand an agriculture and that's important, but it's, it's more important that people who aren't in the industry understand it. Yeah, they want self-driving cars and computers that do everything and like robots in their homes, but they want us to dairy farm like we did when my grandparents were in the Netherlands. You know, like it's just so like kind of counterintuitive that like they they want their cake, but they want to eat it too. And and they also love the convenience of modern agriculture. I think that's something we forget a lot. They don't have to have a cow in their backyard and milk that cow every single day, twice a day. And they get to go and have whatever job, whatever career they want and have a safe available supply of whether that's milk or dairy, they get to have that because of the conveniences of modern agriculture. So it's just kind of like, I, I wish they could see both sides of that coin of that they like have unrealistic expectations for farmers in this modern world that we live in. Yeah, they don't want us to plow because it releases carbon into the air, but then they don't want us to give us the crop, crop protection tools to be able to keep the weeds out if we don't plow. So if you don't use the crop protection tools, or chemistry, or uh, herbicide, whatever you want to call it, whatever name that they're using. If you don't use that, you got to plow. And if you plow, you release carbon. So it's dang if you do and dang if you don't. But what we need to do is use the sound science and use the technology coming down the pipe. We need actually more investment in research and development because there's new ideas that can come to us to help us do an even better job. Uh, but without those dollars, we can't do that. Yeah, and that was actually a big part of the conversation at the conference we met you at was uh, Honor the Harvest, was that financial portion of all of this. Like, we want to be more sustainable. We want a safe food supply system, a healthy food supply system, but we have to have the investment there to be able to do some of this. And I actually think it's a really exciting time in agriculture. Like, I, I probably, you guys will agree with me, I think some really amazing things are happening right now in ag. Like, if you're a young person in technology looking into careers, I, I really think ag is like going to be where it's at in the next 10 years. Like there's exciting things happening. That's exactly right. Because the, the big companies of this world are wanting to, if they can't cut back on their emissions, they want to pay us to help uh, uh, take in some of their emissions through carbon sequestration. And really and truly, they need us. And agriculture can continue on the road of helping our country be more friendly to the climate. Now, we're not causing the problem. We're, we're not causing the problem, but we can be part of the answer to the problem. And that's that's what all that conversation that we had at Honor, Honor to Harvest was all about. And and we look forward to that. I mean, our farmers have uh, 
you know, we talked about conservation for years and conserving our soils and natural resources. And uh, our farmers have voluntarily put 140 million acres across this country, the size of California and New York together, in conservation programs. So don't tell me they won't step up and do the right thing. If there's a program out there that's, uh, that makes sense and, and, and it's uh, market-driven uh, and incentive-based, our farmers will step up and do the right thing. So I was browsing the American Farm Bureau website earlier, President Duval, and I saw that there were a couple of things you guys were devoting kind of your time and attention to right now. Um, you guys are kind of heavy hitting the rural bro- broadband conversation. Um, I saw a little bit of conversation about like a rule um, or ruling with SEC. Can you maybe spend some time like letting us know what you guys are, you know, things that we should be aware of as producers or um, just where you guys are, you know, devoting your time and attention? So broadband is one of the things that we realize without broadband, our farmers can't take advantage of some of those new technologies come down the pipe. And we don't surely don't want small, medium, large, or very, very rural farmers to be at a disadvantage. They need to be on the same playing field with everyone else and everyone else in the world to be able to compete and stay in business and be sustainable. Uh, the SEC rule came out of the uh, securities, uh, uh, securities, Exchange Commission, sorry, my mind went a little blank there. Uh, the Securities Exchange Commission uh, rules over uh, companies that are being traded on, on the market, and they decided they was going to pass a rule, uh, rule that would require those companies that are being traded uh, to prove that they're going to live up to their commitments, their climate commitments. So in other words, if somebody says they're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, then they got to prove it if they're being traded on the on the on the market. Uh, in and 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 there's different levels of of scopes that they 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 that they needed reporting on. So they they wanted to do all scope and scope three deals with raw materials. So if you look at what people are manufacturing, just about everything that they manufactured, the raw material was produced and started on a farm, which means they would have regulated. Uh, in, a, in an indirect way, they would have regulated agriculture because if it's Walmart, Walmart's going to say, I'm not going to buy from that farmer unless I know his reporting is good and we know what his uh, footprint is so that we can report it to SEC. And in a roundabout way, they would have been regulating agriculture. And the SEC has no authority to do that. So uh, I called Secretary Vilsack and told him how uh, concerned we was about that rule. Uh, and I asked him to get me a meeting with the SEC, and the chairman of the SEC called me one Friday afternoon. We had about a two-hour conversation or hour conversation somewhere around there, and uh, he had absolutely no idea of what that rule was going to do to agriculture. He said it was not his intention to regulate agriculture that way and gave us a seat at the table, and hopefully at the end end of this discussion, we will make a difference and prevented more bookkeeping, more consulting fees, more burdens on our farmers that we don't have time to do anyway and surely don't have the profits to be able to pay for that. Yeah, I actually had to ask my husband a little bit to help me break that one down because I was like, what? I showed it to him and I said, what You know, what would this mean for us? Can you help me with this one? And um, he was pretty scared by it by the time he was done reading it. So um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's hard to... Um, 
it just goes to show something that Tara and I say all the time, which is agriculture is not black and white and people want to try and make us black and white, but it, our industry is very complex. There's a lot of nuances to it. Um, and it's really just as a producer, it can be overwhelming trying to, you know, keep up with all the effects that, you know, all the regulations and things that can affect us. Well, and, and, and it is, you're exactly right. That, but that's why organizations like Farm Bureau exist. Uh, we can have our farmers go into a county meeting, have input on our policy, and they can also be signed up for our alerts that we send out to try to make a comment to Congress or to EPA, to the SEC, whatever that ruling may deal with or their law may deal with. And just while they're driving their tractor, they could take their phone and make that comment if they're a member of our organization. And, you know, that's really what drove me to this organization. I was complaining about things, and my dad said, well, if you want to make a difference in that world, you got to be involved in who's making the policy with those people. And, of course, we don't have time to do that as farmers, so we have to do it through a vehicle like Farm Bureau that provides a way for us to do it on our phone, at a county Farm Bureau meeting, at a state convention or a national convention. Yeah, something Natalie and I both advocate for heavily is – letting farmers have a seat at the table so that when something comes up, we can say, hey, this is why that's an issue. That's what, you know, exactly what you said. As soon as you made them aware of the implications for ag, they were like, oh yeah, that doesn't make sense. But, and so like, I have to say thank you to American Farm Bureau for fighting that good fight and making sure that farmers' voices are heard at the tables where they need to be heard because it is, it's impossible for every farmer to, you know, get to wherever they need to be, the big city, go out to Washington and fight all these good fights. And so having an organization like American Farm Bureau really like be able to, like you said, hear those small county meetings, hear those farmers' voices, compile it into a strong, solid, unified voice um, gives agriculture so much strength. There is there's strength in unity. And I think that's something within ag we really have to lean into so that our voices get heard. But, you know, even after that policy comes forward and we are the watchdog, we, we're actually the organization that found that ruling that was out there. No one was paying attention and we found it. But when we made a call to our members to send the SEC an email, the chairman asked me, he said, tell me why I'm getting all these emails from Farm Bureau members. He said he'd had over 4,000 emails from Farm Bureau members. And then uh, the work that we do with an engaged uh, uh membership makes us a very powerful organization. So to wrap this up, President Duvall, I would love to hear from you. What is something in the next, you know, couple of years that you're really excited about that we, we need to keep on our radar? Like what, what's coming up for ag? Well, I, I think, I think I get the most excited about a new farm bill because it is a heavy, heavy lift and it's going to be heavier this time because of all the new uh, servants coming to town uh, to serve in Congress. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to do that. Um, and I continue to be excited about the opportunity to work with whatever administration is here in town. It's my job to develop relationships so that we can push our farmers' voice and policies forward. And, uh, you know, it, from one, one party to the other, we've been successful in doing that. And I'm very, very proud of that. And sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and wonder where ag policy real really would be if it wasn't for the Farm Bureau and its engaged members making a huge difference. And I tell everybody, I'm the 12th president of the American Farm Bureau. And until you sit in this seat and talk with the people that I have the privilege of talking to, 
really don't understand how powerful we really can be. But it's not me, and it's not the people up and down the halls of this building. It's all of us together with an engaged grassroots that can really make it happen. So, you know, if you're not a Farm Bureau member, you need to be. You need to be part of the Dairy Association and Beef Cattle Association and the Corn Association. But together, if we're working together and we're, and we're all members of the same organization, we develop our policies parallel, parallel, and we're all speaking with one voice. And it is a very powerful thing because at the end of the day, we can lose our trucks and we can lose our gas and we can lose our cell phones, but we're all going to have to eat. We're all going to have to have food to eat. And that makes what you and your family and my family, what we do is the most vital work that's done in America because it not only keeps us nourished, it keeps us secure. Thank you so much for President Duval for coming on the podcast today. As always, if you guys enjoyed the podcast, please be sure to screenshot it and share it to your social channels. And don't forget that we are doing a giveaway uh, for every single month. So we're picking one person who has shared to um, any social platform and rewarding with them with some of our favorite things. So be sure to share and tag Elevate Ag. And as always, we'll see you guys next week.